Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. You're listening to the Diverse Tech Founders podcast, the show that brings you the one thing older than capital, people just like you and me. And I'm your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, Diverse Tech Founders family. This week will be an amazing episode for you to listen to because we're going to interview Andy Ayim, founder of Angel Investing School. Admittedly, I am a proud graduate of Angel Investing School where I learned a ton, not just from the guests and from our professor, Andy Ayim, who you'll hear about in a second, but also from the other founders, angels, and aspiring angel investors who took the course and are now doing amazing things in the community. So if you've ever wondered what does it take to sort of get started, what might be helpful to know, I encourage you to listen, re-listen, and study this episode. Without further ado, here it is. Let's start back at square one and let everybody know where you grew up and a little bit about, you know, the origin story of Andy Ayim. Sure. So my full name is actually Andrew Odroayim which not many people know. And my parents originated from Ghana and they moved to the UK in the 1980s, basically so that they can afford a new life for the, the children that they had planned. So I was born in a town called Tottenham, which is in the north of London, which is the capital city of the UK. And I was born in like almost like a mini Ghana town. So we had like your Ghanaian local shops that sold your yams and your plantains. I would always go to these Ghanaian functions like funerals and weddings and baptisms and just be surrounded by the culture, even though I was in London. You know, I'm sure there's places like that in New York, like for Jamaicans and stuff, right? And Caribbeans. And it was very much like that. So I felt like I had a very Ghanaian upbringing, even though I was born in London. And from a young age, my brothers and I were fascinated with technology. And we had a technology park that was a 25 minute walk from our house. And we used to walk there in the evenings and literally sneak in because the doors were unlocked and open up their computers, get on the internet and download Super Nintendo emulators, SNES emulators, so we could play games on their computers. And looking back now, I realized that, wow, I was so interested in technology. I was willing to, to do that, to just engage with the internet. So looking back, I could, I could see now that I was always born and destined to work in some shape or form in technology and in business. But yeah, that's the starting roots of, of where I grew up and what's really influenced who I've become today. That is a phenomenal story. And I didn't know that. that that's really interesting, especially in how you got introduced to technology. Why don't you just tell us a little bit more about that tech background and how it evolved over time? Yeah, so, you know, I have no uncles or parents or family members that ever worked in tech or were even entrepreneurs, apart from this one auntie I had who owns the grocery store that sold the yams and the plantains. So for me, she was like my definition of entrepreneurship. And something else that my dad did when I was really young that was super influential was that he would order a business newspaper to our local news agents, right? It was called the FT, the Financial Times. And that shop never stocked this newspaper because people in Tottenham don't really read those business newspapers, right? You go to the city to get that kind of paper. But that shopkeeper used to order it for us every week. So I started reading up about these stocks and shares and businesses and basically white middle-class lifestyles. And I was fascinated and hooked. 
So the more I started reading into these lifestyles, I started learning about these characters like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and then Mark Zuckerberg. And I couldn't fully relate with them because they're all middle class and white and grew up very different to me. You know, there was no coding clubs around my hood when I was growing up. But I recognized the wealth opportunities that they were getting onto in starting off in, in technology as entrepreneurs. So I got to around, I'll say 18, 19. And my brothers and I had an, and, and a few friends of mine had an idea. You know, we really loved what we call like UK grime and hip hop music, you know, similar to rap music in the US. And there was no central location online to listen to this music. But in the US, we used to listen to this site called datpiff.com and live mixtapes. So we said, we need a UK equivalent of that. So we, we built that. And that was our first startup. It was called Mixtape Madness. And before we knew, we had like 100,000 people that would register with our site. And what had turned from a hobby and something we were just doing to scratch our own itch had actually turned into a startup in its own self. And across that journey, it just taught me about like, you know, being customer-centric, understanding what development and design means and how important it is. And I just started learning this like lean startup methodology by accident. I hadn't read the books. I hadn't connected with people in this world. I was just grinding and hungry and creating this business of immense value. You know, it made over a million in revenue, you know, never took any angel money or any VC investment, all from our own pockets and, and just leveraging debt. And my brother actually still runs that company today. And now they work more on artist development and getting emerging artists to labels and into, into lucrative deals. Um, but that journey of entrepreneurship really just opened up my eyes, man. And from there, the, the story just unfolded. That is huge. So you are responsible for bringing curated hip hop to the UK. That is really a <laughs> background story. And, and what a way to kind of learn about finance and technology through things that you were already interested in and exposed to. Uh, now let's get into kind of the meat of where you are today, which is the Angel Investing School. And just describe for us, what is the Angel Investing School and from where did this idea come? Sure. So the Angel Investing School, the sole goal and mission is to democratize access to the knowledge, capital and networks that exist in this world of tech. Okay. The Angel Investing School's small dent in really that meaningful mission that is my personal mission is that we train up um, professionals on how to get started with investing in startups put simply. So everything from how do I find great entrepreneurs to invest in? How do I develop an investment thesis? Understanding the key terms in the term sheet. We cover all of that in a seven-week curriculum with experienced angels teaching each week of the curriculum. And the goal for me is that the professionals can come out the other end and feel confident and empowered and knowledgeable in making the right decision for their lives around whether they want to invest in a startup or not. And I don't mind if, you know, you finish that course and you feel like, actually, I'm not going to invest in startups for now, but I know how to when the time is right. Like, I'm not trying to just get everyone to finish that course and start flooding the market and investing into startups. But I do believe that if I train more diverse professionals on how to invest into startups, we're going to see more diverse startups funded as a result. Because I read a report in the US that the majority of black founders have at least one black LP on their, on their cap table. So that correlation is just a fact. If we can train up more diverse angels, they have the influence and the responsibility of being that first money in into a lot of these amazing entrepreneurs that just need that access to the opportunity and the capital. And what led me to this idea was that in 2015, I was out in, in San Francisco and I lived there for about seven months. 
and I was working with some of the leading venture capitalists out there and I was connecting a lot of their portfolio companies to corporate clients in Africa and the UK. But in doing that experience, it was almost like a fast track MBA into venture capital. And that's when I realized that there was no one that looks like me or can relate to me that's in the table and around these tables making these decisions. But it's important for us to be around that table because those decisions are leading to where the money's flowing into when it comes to these companies, right? So that's what really influenced me from an early stage that there's something that I need to do about this. And then I got really inspired when I started learning stories about people like Chamillionaire, you know, moving from the rap game to investing in Maker Studio that was acquired by Disney for $800 million. And then Nas forming Queensbridge Venture Partners and investing in so many startups such as Genius, Ring that was acquired by Amazon, Lyft, that IPO, Dropbox that IPO'd. And that just really influenced me because I was from that music background as well. And I knew that you know, actually the majority of their wealth that used to be in music is actually now really being created and growing and accelerated through investing into tech. So I just knew that I had to jump on that wave and try and educate others in my village to jump on that too. You are really expanding the game in a major way. As a graduate, I can say I got a lot of value out of that course and your vision is, is apparent as you move through the coursework every week. You touched on this a little bit. There are a lot of educational programs or courses, maybe not all focused on more diverse angels, but certainly interested in expanding access and the like. What do you think is AIS's technical solution? Like, what do you think is sort of making it a little bit more unique compared to some of the other programs? You're very intentional about building a community, both inside the classroom and outside the classroom. So just kind of talk about that technical solution that you think makes AIS different. Yeah, so there's a few things that really differentiate AIS. So if I look at the American landscape, there's Jason Calicanis who has a book and has Angel University over on the West Coast. You've got Pipeline Angels who run an angel program for women out of New York. But in Europe, you have nothing. So the first step was actually building an educational program by angels for angels. And that's a really important point. Actually, you're getting taught by experienced angel investors, different experienced angel investors each week. It's not just me teaching you what I know, but actually you're able to arrive at an informed opinion from six or seven other opinions. And I think that's really powerful because now you're leaning on the experience of others to inform how you're making a decision, almost like they're your personal board of advisors. The second element is that peer-to-peer -peer network. I'm very intentional around getting the community to connect with each other so that they can form relationships because they're the ones that are gonna be able to co-invest with each other, do due diligence with each other, and help each other out on this journey so it's a less lonely journey, right? So that element of that peer-to-peer -peer community is actually a moat and defensibility long-term because that's where the network effects come from when you start sharing deals with each other, investing alongside each other and minimizing risk because you're seeing it from different perspectives and helping each other out on deals. So that was a really important element to get in this program for me. And the third angle, um, which you may have seen recently, is our apprenticeship scheme. So we get the graduates into apprenticeship opportunities at angel syndicate funds so they can actually invest alongside more experienced angels, right? So we're going further than the average here. You know, we're saying to these funds, basically lower your minimum ticket size to 1,000 to 5,000 pounds, allow our angels to get in, buddy them up with a more experienced angel who's been doing it for years and let them start co-investing and building a track record and confidence in actually the practical side of doing deals. And some of these other courses right now are the self-directed online courses, which are okay for some, but you just miss out on those differentiators that I've mentioned. And actually, by the time that this podcast is released, our email course will be out too. So, you know, top of funnel, there's a free email course that we're providing just that basic surface level information because we recognize that language serves as a barrier into this industry. The same way it does into law, 
and into, into becoming a doctor. Like it's scary and overwhelming learning all of this vernacular that is surrounded in this startup and technology space. So the first step for us in solving that problem and making it more accessible to a wider demographic of people was the release in the AIS dictionary, which has over a hundred common terms, definitions and examples. And now we're going to take that level up and we're going to do this email course to just increase that accessibility so that people feel less scary in taking this path of, of, uh, to wealth creation. It's a great resource and tool to have a reference guide as you're going through the course. You know, I still connect with folks from, from the program who are reaching out in various ways. And, and I didn't, you don't realize when you're going through the course how those connections are being made. People are listening to you and you're listening to them and it's all positive so far. And, and I love that aspect of it. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button. This podcast is made possible by listeners just like you. So thank you for subscribing. And now back to the show. You mentioned that there are other courses and you're going to kind of a, a, a smaller group, a smaller network of folks because the, the angel investing community is, is big, but it's not, you know, super expansive at the, at the moment when you really get down to the numbers. So how did you prove to those stakeholders who have a lot of other opportunities that your target students would actually benefit from AIS and would be able to use it and implement it? How did you kind of make that use case to the stakeholders? Yeah, so a part of that use case came from really just using the limited data that we have on the fact that, you know, a lot of Black, Latino and, and female-led startups have at least one LP from that same demographic. So it shows that actually, like, the more people that we can train up that are diverse, the more likely we're going to get diverse founders backed, period, right? So that data is really strong as a, as a business case to say, this is why we need to do this. The second that was interesting was that a lot of people talk about this friends and family round. If we talk about Kevin Sistrom, the founder of Instagram, on his interview on Masters of Scale with Reid Hoffman, he mentions that he doesn't know why this angel investor invested in him when he started Bourbon. But actually that investment gave him the, the, the runway that allowed him to pivot from this restaurant listing business into Instagram. So that's how pivotal that first round of funding really is because it affords you the time to figure out a business model that's scalable, repeatable, and that can work. So if we can train up more angel investors to put their money, expertise, and their networks to work in these deals at this early stage, I think it has a fundamental output on the amount of you know, black, Latino, and female founders that make it to Series A and go on to have credible exits and IPOs. And, you know, that's going to take 5, 10, 15 years, but I'm excited and contributing to that journey at this elementary early stage. Absolutely. And it's powerful. And, and just to take a step back, I did remember kind of scrolling through my feed and say, wow, what happened to almost half of our, our cohort? They're in these tech jobs or they're in these angel jobs and they're investing in these announcements. And it just made me feel like the community, it, you had immediate impact and it's growing. But I know that there are select spots, uh, not that it's an exclusive program, but you certainly have more demand than you have seats. Who are angel investing schools best student? That's a great question. So I see it in um, three different ways. Similar to a startup sees their kind of initial market, their expansion market, and their kind of growth market. My initial market were professionals that have ideally worked, you know, at least seven years plus in a corporate, you know, and at this stage of life, they've often had like an, another investment in another asset class. So they may have some stocks and shares. They may have a property that they bought, but actually they're really excited about entrepreneurship. They just don't have an idea to pursue themselves. So they want to be useful and help entrepreneurs along that journey, but I've often discounted it 
because they thought the hurdle is too high to enter into it. Like you need 25,000 or 50,000 or 75,000 to start angel investing. Those are like the sweet spot of professionals that I'm training at the moment. So they're ready to invest. They just need the training and they just need the network and the support to get started. The other market that I haven't really penetrated yet, but I'm really excited about are ex-professional athletes and entertainers. You know, Rashawn Williams is doing some great work in the US with, you know, NFL stars and basketball stars and female basketball stars. And in the UK and Europe, we have nothing. But it's such an untapped audience because not only can they put their money to work, they've got differentiated deal flow in the followers that they have because of the influence that they have. And that's an incredible source. So they have a real opportunity, actually, once educated, to make a real difference. And the third, actually, is influencers. So if you think about your beauty vloggers, who many people are discounting, they would be great investors into your D2C brands, right? You could do great partnerships in exchange for some equity and some money in really powering up a lot of direct-to-consumer brands worth with an influencer that knows the content game inside out and has the relationship with various partnerships and distribution channels. So there's so many tactical plays there in the long term once I start really growing into training those audiences as well. It's such an abundance mindset and it only underscores the point on how you're looking at this as a larger movement. This may be a lesson that you have learned from, from your time in the venture space, in the startup space, maybe even something that you had to deal with in starting AIS. Why don't you just describe for the audience and the listeners, what's it like pitching your school or your startup uh, previously while you're working a demanding day job and you have a family? What's it like balancing those two? Yeah, this is a really important topic. Because over the last 10 years, like everything that I've done in my career has contributed to where I am now. And it's important for me to say that because I'm in a position now where I have a lot of influence over my lifestyle design. Okay, so I have a young three-year-old daughter and I've got a wife and I work three days a week doing product management consulting for large corporates in highly regulated industries. That's like my niche. You know, that's like I'm in a blue ocean there. Not many other people swim in that ocean. But it means because of that, I can charge premium rates. And that affords me the privilege to be able to experiment with my spare capacity the two days a week. And, that's, and the Angel Investing School is one of those experiments that have gained traction that I've doubled down upon. And the reason that I mentioned that is because there's a direct correlation with financial stability and the ability to take risk. If you're not financially stable, you're not able to take risk like your competitors in the market can. An example of that is that, you know, you could finish business school, college in the US, and then you want to go and join a startup, but you can't afford to because you want to contribute to rent back home. Whereas some of your white counterparts can afford the privilege of going to work at a startup and not getting paid anything because they've got their parents and the bank of mum and dad to, to lean on. So that means that five years that they gain traction working in startups, they could get more equity positions and they could start a startup based on those experiences where you could work five or seven years in your corporate before you build up enough of that treasure chest to give you the financial stability and the abundance to give you the confidence to go and take that risk. I'm not saying that this applies to all people, but as a working class black man, I can relate to that struggle. And I have empathy into a lot of other professionals that are going through that journey right now. So I recognize the privilege that I have, and I'm trying to use that to address these inequalities that I'm aware of. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I know it's, it's sort of typical and easy for us to break it down uh, on racial lines, which I, I agree with with your sentiments there. And also in middle America, where, where I'm from, I know there are a number of people who didn't maybe grow up on the coast and grew up in sort of blue mm. college, 
uh, households like I did who are dealing with that same thing, sort of regardless of, of their racial makeup. But but mm. I, I totally understand that being able to balance those two is, is super important. So now switching gears a little bit, uh, I know you have a strong team around you. Could you talk about that decision to bring on a co-founder in Angel Investing School and maybe even in some of your prior ventures and, and things that it might be helpful to consider when you're making that decision? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, actually. So, you know, I'm a very uh, principled person and I always write down my personal values. And those values help me make smart decisions on a consistent basis, okay? So... Um, an important value and competency for me when I'm working with people that I love to work with and that I choose to work with is that those people are continuous learners. Okay. So they're people that actually want to continue to grow and want to continue to learn. And you notice these type of people because when you work with them and you throw a problem at them, they don't immediately ask you how to solve that problem. They will try and Google things out. They'll try and YouTube shit. They'll try and listen to podcasts. They'll try and think of any other way to hustle out an answer come to you with a draft to review and then to take it from there rather than ask you immediately, how do I do that thing? I love that trait. So these are kind of traits that I look for. People that are value aligned, people that actually believe in servitude. So believe in something bigger than themselves. I call these people second mountain people. So usually your first mountain in your career is all about the self. Like I want to get paid well. I want to work for this reputable firm. I want to get a promotion. But second mountain people often go through this wobbly period where they're in solitude, you know, they might get sacked. They might have, have left a job that didn't work out. They might be going through a job where they really dislike their boss and their team. And they go through this moment of solitude or self-discovery where they just start to figure out certain things about what they care about and what, they, what matters to them. And then they climb the second mountain, which is all about servitude to others, a mission bigger than themselves. You know, I mentioned mine around democratizing access to the knowledge, capital and networks in this space. That's bigger than me. It, it requires collaboration by default. I love people like that because those people are usually the people that have a little bit more grit, a little bit more resilience. They're willing to go a little, that the extra mile to make things work, you know, and I love that seeing that in people. Um, and the final thing that I love in kind of like a co-founding pair is, you know, finding someone that I genuinely find it a pleasure to work with. You know, I want to wake up feeling like I'm enjoying work and I'm enjoying who I'm working with, especially since I have the privilege to choose who I work with. We can't be so fortunate when we get hired into a corporate gig. But when we're starting up a startup, you just need to be really intentional about that person that you work with because you could be working with them for another 10, 15, 20 years, right? Like it could last longer than most relationships people have had in their lives with their significant other. So like it's really important to, to really like choose someone that you actually enjoy being around and you enjoy working with, and hopefully someone wears iron sharpens iron, and you're growing, a, a growing from being around that person too. And you know, I had that experience in Mixtape Madness where I formed that actually with five co-founders, way too many cooks in the kitchen, which is part of why I left. But now with the angel investing school, I'm almost the opposite of what a lot of VC investors hate. I'm a solopreneur. And what I've done immediately is I surrounded myself with a team. I hired people in a developer and designer and a content creator so that I'm not alone in making decisions and I'm not leaning on my own biases because it's important to have people to test things off so that you're making a more informed opinion not just something that you think is good for example for the customer so yeah there's so many lessons that I've learned along that journey but hopefully those are a few that resonate absolutely I mean grit is important and like you said it's a it's a long-term commitment and relationship Clearly, you've had a lot of experience in, in that vein and, and you know kind of what works for you and, and what the opportunities are. 
I'm reminded in our next question of a story that I once heard about someone going to a faith-based institution and wanting a million dollars. And or actually, I take that back. I think it was the religious leader themselves standing up from their platform and saying, you know, this is what I would do with a million dollars. And there was somebody in the audience who then came and gave them a million dollars so that they could implement it because they were sold off of the idea of how they would spend it. So now mm. switch that question for you. What would you do with a million dollars in funding right now? If I had a million dollars in funding, there's two things that I would consider doing. One is um, really expanding the angel program to put money behind a lot of these angels that I'm training so that I can help them build their investment track record so that they can go on to become fund managers themselves. Because building an investment track record is one of the core requisites to starting your own fund in America and in, the, in Europe. So I'll help people build up that track record, right? The second thing that I would consider is actually becoming a fund of funds. So there's a guy called Low Tony in, in, in the US who started Plexo Capital, and he allocates money as an, a limited partner into diverse and underrepresented general partners. We need more of that. So, I, you know, I'll try and raise up more than a million. I'll use a million as leverage to raise up more hopefully after producing some early results so that I could create a fund of funds and back more underrepresented DPs because that will just scale the impact and accelerate the results that I'm trying to gain here with the Angel Investing School. It makes a lot of sense. And I realize I might have shortchanged you a little bit by switching currencies on you to dollars instead of pounds. No, it's all good. <laughs> I realize the pound may have gone a little bit further, but who knows. So what's the most profitable piece of advice you've gotten since you first started Angel Investing School, that minimal viable service, minimal viable school. I'm sure a lot of people have come to you in the meantime, but what's been the most profitable piece of advice that you've had if you view it in a profitable context? Um, probably two pieces of advice. Um, one uh, from one of our facilitators and Angel Investors, Matt Pennycard at Ada Ventures. And he says, write the check, write it off and go to work. And I think it's really important psychologically to understand that you're writing that money off. Most startups, 90% of new startups die within the first three years and your investment might go to zero. But at least you know that you've gone to work in helping that startup be the best that they can be regardless of the outcome. And I think it's really important to get that in, in your head as an angel investor to be active in leveraging your expertise and your network and going to work for the startup as an extension of their team. We're in a partnership here. The second piece of advice that I received actually about 10 years ago at the start of my career was that regardless what career you go into, you're always in the relationship building business. So you need to nurture long-term relationships and measure your impact in decades and not days. And yeah, that's just really profound in itself. The next question is about sort of your business model and you don't have to go in the weeds or give the secret sauce or anything, but for folks who may be interested in supporting or curious about the long-term sort of viability and want this to stick around, how do you make money? Two primary ways that we make money. One is that the students themselves pay to come onto the course. So we charge around $500, switching currencies, to get onto the course. Um, and that's a seven week course along with the community and along with opportunity to join angel syndicates to get started with your investing journey. And then the second is that we also offer some sponsorship opportunities. We had a private sponsorship opportunity with a VC fund who have an angel program and five of their angels called Aid of Aid Ventures, a 30 million pound fund in the UK that invests in overlooked markets and underrepresented founders. And five of their angels came through the angel investing school to get training and almost qualified 
so that they could then be armed with 50,000 pounds each to start making angel investments. And the third kind of partnership opportunity we had was with a company called OneTech. And OneTech basically sponsored to pay for five places for five people who couldn't ordinarily afford the opportunity. So those were scholarship opportunities. And the reason I love that one especially is because it widens the net so that the young Andy from Tottenham or from Jersey or New York, actually, who can't afford it, but is really interested in his asset class, can gain access because they've been sponsored into these opportunities. And we can see how sponsorship opportunities have worked in the US across sports and across other fields of education. And I'm trying to do the same thing here to democratize access to as wide in it as possible. That is a, that's a great answer to that question because it's not just about the dollars and the cents or the pounds and the pence. It's really about where that money is coming from and how it is producing value. And, and I think that's a, that's a great way of looking at it. We've, and one thing I'll quickly add as well is that, you know, you can, you can make money and do social good too. Like you can be profitable while doing good. And that's what the angel investing school really represents. I like how you slipped in that corporate social responsibility. <laughs> Appreciate that. So we, we find that, you know, in many cases, there's a bit of overlap. And you've already alluded to this as well with the investing community, with the artistic community. Artists are, are you know, they're entrepreneurs in their own right in, in many, many ways. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button. This podcast is made possible by listeners just like you. So thank you for subscribing. And now back to the show. For you, from a child and, and then up until now, which artist has kind of most inspired your work or that you relate to or that really gets you excited and pumped about all of the, the positive stuff that you're doing? That's a great question. I think one of the undercover people that have really inspired me as a digital mentor um, is Magic Johnson. You know, so seeing him do partnerships with the likes of Starbucks and take that into and helping them basically with their expansion plan, I think is incredible. I've seen what LeBron is doing like recently with his integrated media play and some of the partnership deals he's done, such as Liverpool FC. And what it's really taught me is that like equity positions actually is not just about investing money, but it's also about leveraging your brand and your reach to, to really get into these positions of influence. It's just beyond the money and the capital is what they're teaching me. And then of course, people like Nas and Chimillionaire, Jay-Z has got his VC firm, Troy Carter, at Mac Ventures, all of these people really paved the way in, in just validating that, you know, we're doing the right thing. And I think one of the first entrepreneurs that I actually wrote about was Tope, the, the founder of Calendly. And to see what he's done, basically bootstrapping with around 600K in investment to 60 million annual recurring revenue is incredible. You know, and I could say the same actually for not just Tope, but even Tristan Walker and the transparency that he's provided on his journey, you know, on being VC funded, but then actually exiting so that he had more control and autonomy over building his company within a, a larger corporate brand and i think the more of these kind of like authentic transparent stories that come out to say that actually we belong at those tables too because i can recognize other people that i can see at those tables today that is a great answer i'm going to challenge you a little bit to follow up this response because you challenged us as our professor in the school and left room for uh, the women in our, our class our cohort to speak up uh, if they had anything to say when the men were sort of dominating the conversation in, in one particular class so uh, you mentioned the number of folks who influence you could you talk about some of the women that you've been following or looking at who you're excited about who you see some overlap in, in kind of what they're doing and the creativity they're bringing to the space 
Absolutely. So Monique Woodward was one of the first female investors that I'd learned about in the US when she was at 500 Startups. More recently, she started Cake Ventures. And again, she's focusing on really interesting overlooked markets, such as the aging population. And it just reminds you about the importance of having a differentiated thesis. And another, obviously, is Arlen Hamilton. I was hired and I worked at Backstage Capital in 2018, 2019. And I had a profound impact on my brand, my knowledge and my experience working with that team. So yeah, there's a number of women who have influenced me in this space. Those are just two of many. Absolutely. And I know that a number of folks are looking at you for inspiration in the UK. You're sort of building your own community or very involved in the London tech community. We really want to understand, you, you mentioned sort of your background how it has its own challenges, but in what ways does your background actually make it easier for you to succeed now? That's a great question again. These are some good questions you're coming up with, brother. One of the things that I realized is that I've got an attitude to hustle, and I don't know if that's the right word to use, because my distance traveled in life, okay? So growing up working class in Tottenham, I recognize that my distance traveled isn't about the qualifications that I get or the institutions that I've worked in, but it's actually how much I've really broadened my horizons and my mindset and grown along that journey. It was fundamentally, I guess, a mind-opening experience for me when I went backpacking at 21 to, to South America, you know, just opening my mind to different cultures and being in different environments as an active participant. I came back with just a, such an, a different mindset to how to, on how to operate in this world. And what that means is that I go into these conversations now and I recognize that diversity is actually my advantage because now I can go in there and see the world through so many different perspectives and actually ask who's not in the room because I understand it deeply. And I always kind of like built my career around a certain expertise in product management originally. I think it's important because I didn't want to be known as just a diversity and inclusion consultant. I wanted to be known for moving the needle on results that actually matter. And I'm not saying that to disregard the hard work that people are doing in the DNI space, but a part of that job is actually to do yourself out of a job. And that's what I've always been centered around. Actually, how can our voices be heard and acted on? Because right now there is a deficit of great leaders in the world. And I'm not going to get political too deep, but it's really sad this year, like, you know, seeing the rallies with the Black Lives Matter movement and more recently with SARS in Nigeria, that we just need more leaders empowered young leaders who are going to be courageous and take the charge. And I feel like there's more of us out there that we just need to empower and enable to get into these positions of influence to start doing the right things on a global scale. Totally. And I'm glad you, you sort of connected those, those two movements together. I think it's great that, that you're identifying just from beginning to end some of the, the different points that, that could move the needle, as you said. If Angel Investing School could only keep one session. If someone could only show up for one week, you had to strip <laughs> out every other course, every other touch point, what would that be? It's less about the subject matter and it's more about the facilitator. And I'll explain why. So in week one, after our welcoming week, um, you may recall that a good friend of mine, Marcus Exel, came and shared his journey. I would say an hour of the session, it was just a straight Q&A. But having that access to an experienced investor such as Marcus, who's made a 200% return on his investments, and he hasn't even exited his own portfolio, and he's willing in that safe space to answer any question that you have, regardless if it's related to that week's topic or not, that is the privilege that you're afforded in that week. And that is what I want people to take away. It's less about this week was on sourcing and assessing founders. This week was on developing a thesis. 
It's more about the access to that conversation and to that digital mentor that you can now actually have a conversation with. You know, and that's the reason that I veered away from just doing a video course only, because you don't get that interactive element where you can tailor the conversations and things that you actually cared about. Part of the reason why a lot of people probably connected with you on the course, because you were asking questions and you recognize that you have a limited period of time with these individuals. So you're going to get certain stuff off your chest and have that conversation in the room. And I think that is the one thing that I would keep if everything got strips back. Absolutely. And I would join it for, the, for that basis alone as well. And I wasn't the only one. The class was very inquisitive. They were peppering with, with Absolutely. solid questions, consistent mm. questions. And from the perspective of people who are just getting started and also from the perspective of people who they're knee deep in the investment world. So I thought that was, that's a great answer to that question. Uh, this next one is one that you might typically as uh, your founders, right, uh, along their journey. And that is, can you name a pivot that you think saved Angel Investing School or put it on a different trajectory? <laughs> Absolutely. So we had a partnership with Google for startups and Angel Investing School in April 2020 was meant to be run physically at the Google campus in London. And we had it booked out. We had everything planned. We had refreshments. We had like all sorts of gifts for the cohort as well as the facilitators and COVID hit. And as soon as COVID hit, we had no choice but to pivot. And I had to really focus on what is the outcome I'm trying to achieve here and what is the value that I'm trying to create and how can I do that regardless of the circumstances and these variables. And that's what led us to the model that we're at today. And I don't think we're ever going to go back to that old model. I think actually it's more powerful the way that it's actually iterated and pivoted to where it is today. And it allows us to, to connect with people such as yourself in New York. And we had people in Paris, we had one, one in Netherlands that we just couldn't do if we had to physically get in a room. So yeah, that's a pivot that's actually here to stay, adapting to this situation. I think the key thing was that we were open-minded to saying, actually, how can we change to still deliver that outcome, still deliver that value, rather than feel like, Let's postpone this until we can physically get together again. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you did. It, it really has been an impactful course during these times. And, you know, it, it feels relatively seamless. I wouldn't have thought that was a pivot because it seems so well structured. Like that was the way that you had it planned from the beginning. So now shifting gears a little bit again, we're going to ask a question that everybody is curious to know your answer to, I'm sure, because we get some phenomenal responses to this. And it really evidences and shows sort of what is going on in folks' head when they think about the true scale and value, but also their philosophy on money and how it relates to their lives and their business. Uh, do you want to run a billion dollar company? Why or why not? I'm not interested in running a billion dollar company. You know, like in my career, I made a very conscious decision. There's two paths that you can really go down in, in most careers, okay? You can become a people manager. So as a product manager, that means me becoming a chief product officer and managing people. And those people are actually doing the work. Or I could become an individual contributor at IC, where I remain as a specialist and I deliver services, let's say as a coach or a consultant, within that specialism, but I do not have any direct reports and I'm not managing people, right? And I decided to go down the IC route, not because I don't think I have influence over people and I don't, I'm not a pleasure to work with, but because the administrative duty and the emotional toll of managing people is expensive and it's, it's not easy. And it's something that I don't enjoy. It drains my energy. It doesn't give me energy. 
So I have to be self-aware myself in saying that that is not my aspirations. And it only scales when you're managing a billion dollar organization, right? And the second thing is that, you know, this sounds very morbid, but I did this thought experiment around being on my deathbed at whatever age and saying to myself, like, what are the things that I'm really going to be craving for? Is it going to be my property investments? Is it going to be my startup investments? Is it going to be the money in my bank? Or is it going to be my loved ones? And if it is my loved ones, then why can't I actually focus and optimize on spending as much time with them now rather than wait till I'm on my deathbed to do so then? And that really reframed how I spend my time and actually like try and spend my time even away from my family doing things that I actually want to do. Because it's all a trade-off. It's all an opportunity cost. So you might as well spend as much time as possible living in consistent happiness. And that's just a philosophy that works for me. And I'm not going to try and preach it to others, but I think it's important for everyone to be introspective and to find what works for them. And, you know, there's a South African Zulu philosophy called Ubuntu, which says that I am because of you. And in recently being awarded the MBE from the, from the Queen, like I absolutely believe that it's a shared achievement and that I am only getting this MBE because of our shared contribution to this village together. And I would be foolish to think that I'm fully in control and I fully deserve all this praise. And actually there's not an element of a higher power at work here. You know, like even this pivot for the Angel Investors Group, would it or would it have not happened if not for COVID, right? But I think that's the blessings of being like entrepreneurial minded that even in crisis, you see opportunity. Absolutely. What a thoughtful meditation to really hone in on on what matters you are aware i believe of some of the things that we have been doing you know even before covid and, and since is uh, the app launch parties inviting people during the pandemic times to spend outside and, and we've taken all those precautions uh, it's really great and a slightly different from pitch competitions because instead of sort of sometimes having founders a little bit on their heels and defending mm. their company and really fighting for the money they're in an environment where they can be vulnerable and the audience can be vulnerable because you don't have to be an expert in it if you're an investor uh, you don't have to feel like uh, you have to invest if somebody gives a great mm. It's just an environment where people can get so to know important. each other. And, and so my question for you is when, I'll say when you come to one of our app launch parties, uh, what question do you think you might ask? So I'm a product manager, so I'm always thinking about product. Like, why do people like using your app and why do they keep coming back? And it's really important for me to understand that the founder really deeply understands their customers in this way. And if they can't answer that question, my next task would be like, actually, like you should think about getting to know who your customers are and why they keep coming back and who isn't coming back and why aren't they coming back? Because that retention kind of viral loop is what you need to understand so you can attract more of the same kind of customers. So it improves how you go and acquire those customers. It improves the experience that you provide for those customers. It improves how you incentivize those customers to refer others. So I'm such an obsessive thinker about customers over competition because I believe that there's a market for everything, right? It's just whether you can obsess enough and get deep enough into that trench to understand who your customers are serving and whether you can meet their unmet needs, right? Whether this product truly fits this market. So I obsess over that. And I love when founders are vulnerable enough to say they don't know and for me to coach them along that journey to say like, this is how you can do it, right? Because I feel like product management is such a, a bit of a dark heart, which is just not discussed or is a capability that's just not really known yet, widely appreciated, but it's such an important one, I think, for founder training. I agree. And I love that 
obsession? That would be a great question and one that consistently would be helpful probably. So uh, coming to our final question, you've kind of sped through this, even though the, the answers have been really full and they've certainly kind of filled me up, I'm sure the guests as well. Before we get to how people can get in touch with you, what's the most valuable thing that Angel Investing School does for its students and the guests that you've invited on? It's a great question. I think one of the most important things is that similar to your app launches, we create this safe space where we shift the power dynamic, right? The investor is not superior to the founder. The, the angels that are teaching are not superior to the angels that are taking a class. It's truly flat. And it's almost as if we're putting our, like a lot of the, the peers on the course don't even know what each other do for a job, right? We're putting all of that aside and we're just coming as humans for the very human-centered experience where we just share our truth together both ways. And I love that. And I want to always create that win-win dynamic. So, you know, even the facilitators, we pay our facilitators. And when they say no, we donate to a charity of their, of, of their choice, or we send them a gift because we want to show that appreciation for that value that they've actually sacrificed that time they could have spent with their family, could have spent doing anything to be with us in that special moment, right? So I'm always trying to create that equitable environment where actually everyone feels that like they can arrive and be their most authentic self and actually add value not only just extract value from that interaction that is inspirational and it comes through the guests genuinely want to be there and they are open to the questions and they want to know and want to help and i don't know how you you've really prepped everybody in the group but everybody feels super empowered to ask really pointed questions and to make sure that they get that answer and, and the guests seem to want that exchange to happen before they before they log off so now that one, we one thing I would say as well is that um, my actual favorite week personally is the welcome week. And I think you missed it this, this time around. But during that welcome week is when we get to let our hair down, get to know each other before we actually start the course. And I think that is a pivotal week that really gets people into the right mindset before actually embarking on the course. That is, that's a good point. I know in the in the first course that I attended, we sort of had to draw and describe our character. That's the one. That's the one. That, that yeah. was a really good experience. I'd never done that before, doing the, the wiki race, I think is what you, you called it or something. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, it was good to level set there and, and really get a sense of, of who people were as they as they entered the course. So I'm glad that that's still a part of it and, and a staple. Uh, so now that we've kind of gone through your journey, Angel Investing School, and you know everybody knows now that you've been elevated uh, with the MBE uh, in the UK, that is phenomenal and in the Commonwealth, to be honest with you. So how can people continue to keep up with you? What's the best way to, to figure out about Angel Investing School and to continue following and watching and supporting you? No, I appreciate that. So for the past four and a half years, I've, I've been releasing a newsletter every Monday on minorities and tech in, in the UK. By far, that's the best, best way to stay like, up to date with everything that's dynamically moving and changing in the world of Asian Investor School and the ecosystem in the UK. So you can sign up to that on andyam.com. I'm sure we'll put something in the show notes. But that's the center of gravity where you can connect with, with me, with the Asian Investing School, with everything that I'm involved in from a board perspective or an event perspective as well. And I'm sure I'm going to publish this podcast in that newsletter too. Awesome. That is fantastic. Well, if you haven't heard enough about Angel Investing School, just go back and replay this because this has been a great uh, entry into to something that's pretty cutting edge and pretty new. Thank you so much, Andy born Andrew. Uh, 
Thank you so much for coming on. And I'm looking forward to seeing how, how this journey continues to grow. We can't really thank you enough for there's not a, an amount of money we could really give you for, for the impact that you've made in these folks' lives to just, you know, quantify and provide these permutations in, in the work that you're doing. So uh, bless you. And we look forward to seeing what you have left. No, my pleasure. And thank you for even creating a space like this to have these conversations. So keep it up. Thank you. I appreciate that. With that, I will let you go. Thank you. Thanks for joining this week on Diverse Tech Founders with Abraham J. Williamson. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. You can do it right now. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. Thanks again.